Welcome, Theo 102, yes. to our Friday session. Welcome to Friday. We are very excited. We are finishing our last week of church history boot camp slash thinking about the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. Thanks for hanging in there with us. Dr. Payne took us up to the year 2020, and now we're going to consider a question, which is no doubt on your mind. It's on everyone's mind. It's even on the minds of people who I think who are not religious or who mm -hmm. don't attend church, which is, and it, and it, and it kind of moves as a part two to the debate from last week about the Protestant Reformation, namely the question, do we have too many churches? Like, is it good? Is God happy that there's a church on every street corner in America of a denomination that split from another group, that split from another group, that split from another group? There are churches that are like specific churches for motorcycle people or people who are in rodeos. There are specific churches for movie stars. There are specific churches for people who believe in X. There are specific churches who believe in, you know, for people who believe in Y. Like, is this too much division? Well, you may have answered that, <laughs> your, your position on that, even in no, the, in the no, way I'm you asked not, the no, question. No, I'm not, I'm not answering. Yeah. Let's have the debate right now. One of the you questions I, okay. that I get asked a yeah. lot, because yeah. I study the history of Christianity in America, is why are not just why are there so many churches, but specifically in these United States, mm. why are there so many churches? And mm. I exactly the stuff that you said, like the, the kind of maybe more fringe stuff, like, yeah. you know, motorcycle church, but also why are there so many what we think of as mainstream mm. versions, and why do we still seem to just make them up all the time? Um, is that a bad thing? Is that a good thing? We're going to be weighing whether or not we think that is bad or good, um, today with our debate, and I'm excited about this one. Yeah. I'm going to be participating in it for one thing. You're going to be participating. Well, let me introduce the debaters in that case. That's debater, right. For our first debater, Dr. Leah Payne, right Hello. here. Oh, yes. You know her well from this class, historian of American Christianity and other things as well. She's going to be taking up a particular position, which you're going to hear about. Her debate opponent, you know her well as well from lectures and other appearances, Dr. Melissa Ramos. Yes. Scholar of the Old Testament, but also a minister in the Presbyterian Church, and she's been a pastor before, and so she knows very well about these dynamics, and she's going to take up a position, and I'm excited to hear where this goes. Whatever you think my position is, I'm open to being changed. I just don't know what to think about it, you know? I'm, on, I'm with the students. There's a lot. There's a lot to consider. Yeah. yeah. I'm excited about it. Let's say the creed together before we um, start this baby, okay? Yep. Stand up. Just stand up. Stand Excellent. up. There are three TAs in here, and they're standing. Your faithful TAs. Thank you. I believe, I believe in, in God, God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. Let's welcome our debaters. You're supposed to be clapping at that. Hello, Theo 102. Greetings. Hello, in our introduction, we said that Melissa Ramos was gonna be one of the debaters today, I think, in our introduction. If that wasn't said in the introduction, then just pretend like that never happened or this. But if we did, which I think we did, then in fact, 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure we did too. Um, I'm Melissa Ramos for this, Brian Doak. I will be the weak and terrible opponent of the illustrious Dr. Payne. Oh, brother. Yeah, no, things are just changing very quickly, as you all know. So wherever you are, we hope that you are safe and sound and that you have a moment to join us for a debate on today's, this week's lecture. Yay! We are debating with each other. We are also moderators. You can debate each other as well. Just zoom each other up out there, all, you know, all of you. Um, we're going to kind of continue in some ways the themes from the previous debate, which was should the Protestant Reformation have happened? That was a good debate. I learned a lot through that. We're going to kind of do a part two of that, which is in a sense, knowing now that the Reformation did happen, of course, are there too many churches? Ha granted, we've had a couple of big splits in the church. Are there now just too many splits, though? Too many splits of splits of splits of sub-splits. And we learned in the lecture this Monday something about the way that this developed and the kind the reasons groups kind of cleaved apart from each other and so on. And so the question becomes, you know, do we have too many churches now? Yes or no? And, and each of us is going to take up a side on that. Yeah. And before we started recording, we actually um, asked each other who wanted to take which side. And both of us thought we could argue from the, you know, both sides. So we're going to see where we go with this. I'm actually pretty excited. Um, uh, which we know is not what you all wanted. You all wanted us to like represent full-blooded views that we do have. I will say that the views I represent here, I do have, it just represents a certain kind of shading of those views, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, totally. I'm going to represent, see, I go back and forth on this myself. And so I'm going to represent one version of that. And these are absolutely my convictions. So we're going to tell the truth. We're just going to also teach through showing difference. So... Right. Yeah. You go first. You want to go first? Go first? I go first. You, do you um, want to go first? Okay, I'll go first. You want to go first? Okay. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna do your time here, just so you know. Okay, you time. I have. Um. I'm. I'm. I'll put it. I'll put. I'll put that time up there. I'll put it right in your face. I'll show you okay. when you're at six minutes. I will do if I can figure out how to get to my timer quickly on my phone. Um, All right. I have to time myself. I'll do that too. Are you ready to begin? Yep, I'm ready. You just started. Okay, so I'm going to say, no, there are not too many churches. There are not too many expressions of Christianity. And I'm going to um, explore this with the idea. So I'm going to say, no, there are not too many versions of Christianity because um, Christianity is a representation of the multifaceted beauty of Christ and his body on earth. And um, you can have distinction and also enjoy profound unity through the Holy Spirit. I kind of made a case for that um, in my lecture earlier this week. But I want to explore some of the pros of having many different expressions of Christianity. So um, one of the pros or one of the benefits of having many different versions of Christianity is I would argue that it is missional or evangelistic. So if we are, go, are tasked with going throughout the world and making disciples of all believer or of all people in every culture and in every um, corner of the world, and in fact, if we are tasked with doing that here in our current cultural context, wouldn't it make sense if to have robust expressions of Christianity that are um, distinct from one another? So. Um, I think this would also offer an opportunity 
for people to follow the conviction um, of their heart. So one of the things that um, a friend's university like ours, a Quaker university, one of the kind of hallmarks of friends um, was this idea that the spirit is speaking to all of us, each and every single person, and it is our responsibility to respond to the leadings of the Holy Spirit. So there are many, many examples of very faithful people throughout the history of um, Christianity. And I'm thinking especially of Protestantism and especially of Protestantism in the United States where people have felt like they needed, they were hearing from the spirit that ne they needed to strike out and create something new to more fully reflect the teachings of the scripture or the person of God, like the body of Christ on earth. I think it also allows for, um, Christians to embrace the spirit's role when it comes to holiness. So if there's a version of the church that is not living up to um, the full expression of the holiness of God, you know, say if they, it, it, if a believer feels that they have, um, you know, gone strayed too far from the teachings of Christ or the scriptures, um, he or she may feel called to create something new. So if there's an issue of holiness, it's really important for the church to be holy. Um, there's also a role, I think, for the prophetic. So um, if there is a particular body of the church, um, a particular version of the church that has strayed from the teachings of God when it comes to something like, you know, things that the scriptures are really, really, um, value something like not treating the poor well or um you know not taking care of widows or people who are marginalized on the outside if there's a version an expression of the church that isn't being faithful to the universal call that all christians share to do this then um it's okay and in fact it may be advisable for a group of believers to break off in protest um to have a prophetic voice so I think um, one of the one of my favorite books of the Bible, in fact, probably my favorite book of the Bible is the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, um, the, the author talks about this beautiful moment when every tribe and every tongue and every nation is gathered together and is um, expressing the beauty and the glory of God together. I think that is our final destination. Um, and what binds us together isn't necessarily a particular denomination or group, but it's the person of Jesus. So I'm going to say that, yes, it's okay that there are many multi multiple ex expressions of Christianity. Um, and, and in fact, it can actually be a beautiful and a good thing. So I'm going to rest my case right there. I'm actually going to end early. And I'm going to give Dr. Doak an opportunity to present his case and then we'll respond to each other. Wow, four minutes and 47 seconds. That was the shortest main debate thing. So such well-made points. What more is there to say? How could anyone even respond? I have a feeling you're going to come up with something. Do you want to time me or should I time myself? I'll time you. Okay. Okay. Tell Ready me when. And go. The book of Revelation is a great point to start right where Dr. Payne ended. Revelation has all people of every tribe and every tongue together worshiping at the throne of God in heaven. John chapter 17 has Jesus telling his disciples that, that, that he wants his followers to be completely one 
And in the book of Acts, um, we have an image of the believing community that is, I mean, just so tight-knit. They're not social distancing. They are coming in close. They are sharing everything. And, and their world had many more plagues in it than ours does. That is for sure. Um, here's my pitch. If that's the way it is in the ideal community, if that's the way it is in heaven, let's just do it now, <laughs> right? Like, let's make on earth what is real in heaven, as in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, there's an issue here in some ways maybe of, and this is introducing a bit of a fancy theological language of under-realized eschatology versus over-realized eschatology, okay? Over-realized eschatology is like saying, you think that the end, the final goal is already here, but you've over-realized it. Like you think we're just living in heaven on earth. Well, look around, clearly we're not. Under-realized eschatology though would be like not living into the gifts and the heaven God has given us here on earth enough. Probably many Christians would agree that the balance here in this question lies somewhere between those things. But I'm going to argue that Dr. Payne's position is too much of an under-realized eschatology. It doesn't go far enough into seeing God's will being done for unity here on earth um, now. I mean, now, that's a high that's a high-flown kind of theological way of talking about it. But I have more practical concerns as well. Um, why are there so many churches? Dr. Payne's reason, one that she mentioned, was a beautiful good reason. The need for prophetic diversity within the group and critique. I love it. I love a critique. Dr. Payne knows how much I love a critique, and I know how much she loves one. But here's the thing. Is that really why all these churches exist? Because of all these beautiful, wonderful prophetic critiques just filling the souls of the faithful? Or maybe there's some of that, but is there also just an immense amount of tremendous pettiness and power struggle over who gets to speak, who gets to talk, even things as petty as how the interior of a church looks, what kind of songs are being sung. Dr. Payne is a scholar of American Christianity, knows much better than I do how many, just how profoundly and how many churches have split over this issue of music. And those of you who go to church, you probably know about some of these battles that have gone on, the so-called worship wars, whose music gets to be privileged, right? Which just turns out to be not exactly so prophetic, but just about whose stylistic preferences get chosen. Um, I think a lot of this multiple church thing is about, is a kind of a, a catering to a certain kind of consumer culture, right? Like we expect just like, just like that every product can be specialized for my needs. And our, our ways as consumers have trained us to think like this, right? Like if I want something, I want it, and I want it exactly like I want it, and don't tell me I can't have it exactly like I want it. And that kind of works when I'm like at Chipotle and I want to like customize the burrito or whatever. Um, there's a serious question for Christians about whether this works when it comes to the kingdom of God and the way the church worships together, right? There seems to be this deep need for these niche identities. So this trickles down into every, every kind of way. Like people in America today, probably in a lot of the West, are, are encouraged culturally to like identify in certain identity groups. I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm a this. And sometimes these get like really, really, really specific. Not just really broad things like, oh, I'm a white male, therefore I'm part of this identity group, which I happen to be. But like much, 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 much more specific than that. Certainly we don't want to see churches just segregated by race all the time, although there are reasons that that happens, maybe even reasonable reasons. But that's, you know, that's really sad to think how badly racially segregated our churches are. But then to segregate over all kinds of other reasons, like to have specialty churches for people who are like 
kind of like hip and love this kind of music or people who are traditional and a little bit older. Like I just, ah, I just don't think that that's what Jesus was talking about. You know, um, we, we see this by the way, in our news sources, right? You get confirmation bias. Like if I am, if I am X politically, I'm going to watch X news channel. Like we know that there's a correlation between your politics and the news you take. And thus you get this kind of like confirmation bias where the very thing that Dr. Payne mentioned, which would be so awesome, namely the idea that we could prophetically learn, noted, namely the idea that we could prophetically learn from each other in all this critique doesn't happen because we just segment off into our identity groups ideologically with people who already agree with us. And thus we never actually get that critique. And when I hear you know, Dr. Payne shouting from her church over there at my church over here. I'm not listening to that. I just see that as like enemy kind of talk. That's just basic human like anthropology. And so that seems to drive us further apart. This, this, this identity group confirmation bias thing has seeped so deeply into our lives. It'd be a good time for Christians to resist it and even be together in, within the same four walls with, with others who don't agree and not just have to critique or be prophetic from the outside but do it and then have to face that person next Sunday and be there with them in the pew taking communion. I will end a little earlier, though not as early as you. There we go. Oh, you're done. Okay, okay. I thought you had like one last killer sentence. As okay. On earth as it is in heaven. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's very good. Yeah. All right. So let's see here. I guess according to our own rules, we have about five minutes to, to respond to each other. To each other. Yeah, I mean, I think I appreciate your comment about consumerism and um, the idea that uh, if we're just segregated according to particular identities, then that can be potentially damaging to the unity of the church. But I think I would want to make a couple of points in response to that, that um, in, in favor of my own position, which is first, just because people do, um, you know, segregate themselves or or go into disunity with one another because of consumeristic things doesn't mean that they don't also do it for theological conviction so i think that you know students who come especially from like a lutheran tradition would know that luther's original intent was not to be out of communion with the church that happened eventually but his his movement and i think lutherans would argue that he was moved by the spirit of god was based in sincere theological conviction um, not necessarily in, um, you know, based out of any sort of, um, right. like desire to sell Christianity. In fact, he was re rebelling against the impulse of selling indulgences, which was selling some aspect of the Christian life. And I think also one, one other point, and then I'll kick it over to you, which is this, I think that although it's certainly true that we don't want to reduce the Christian life to particular identity groups, at least in the history of this country, there are particular pockets of the church that have blessed the church universal with their particular cultural expression. And so I'm thinking, in, um, especially of the African-American church in the US, the incomparable prophetic witness of the African-American church, especially during something like the civil, civil rights movement, wherein they called the entire country to repentance, that was a positive version of a, a kind, an expression of the church that is based primarily around a cultural experience. What do you think? Totally agreed, although I need that in my church. Like I need that in my life. Like I grew up in a place and in churches that were just totally devoid of anyone who is not white. And I missed out, I missed out bad, you know? And that prophetic critique, I didn't get it. 
I didn't get it. I'm not calling on groups that are not, that are not white or minority groups to leave their churches and come to my white church to enrich my experience. Like that would be super. That would be like consuming. Yes. Yes. That'd, that'd be ridiculous. I'm not talking about that. And maybe it's up to me to like go into those environments and to experience them for myself, which I have done in various ways. Okay. Um, but this thing, this point about ideology and theology, that it's not just ideology, sometimes it's genuine theological conviction. Yes, I, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm dumb, maybe I'm cynical. I have a hard time separating those things, especially when I look at other people. Like if you look at our political scene today, people's political, like you can, if, if you take someone who's a Christian and you also find out who they, whom they voted for, you can make really accurate predictions about where they go to church, right? And the kinds of, or if you, if you see where someone goes to church, you can make strangely accurate predictions, maybe not as accurate as, as you could 20 years ago. But I think you can still make oddly accurate predictions about whom someone voted for based on where they go to church and, 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 and their worship style, just like you can with someone's income as well. And so, I don't know, like these things get kind of, these things get kind of mushed together in ways that make it difficult for me to see the purity of people's true theological motives. I mean, regardless of what Luther wanted or didn't want, I mean, Luther was super, super divisive and I think got more divisive regardless of how he started that journey. Um, you know, I, I think he had a little journey along the way in which he intended uh, later for some things to happen that he didn't intend for it at the beginning. And I think that that was certainly true with the reformers who came in. They certainly got a very clear message from him about what was supposed to happen with the church. So if Luther really wanted everyone to just kind of remain together in a happy family, he did a really bad job talking about it um, that way. Because he oh, did yeah. I mean, I think it's clear that he was a very ordinary guy. Even if you're like the biggest fan of Luther ever, you have to admit that he was a handful for sure. <laughs> I think one of the things that um, I, I think that I struggle with the, the unity message, like we all, like there are too many, there should be fewer versions of the church is really just is a practical. And then it's essentially also a theological question. How do you do it? Who gives up what, you know, who compromises what? Um, in the United States, it's especially hard because we have this idea, we have a disestablished relationship between the church and the state. So there's no like state religion that everyone has to be involved in, which most Americans would celebrate that. And I mean, I'm, I'm happy with that situation as well for a lot of different reasons. But one of the downsides to that is that it, it creates um, a, a, you know, a time, like a type of competition between um, churches. And so then how do you ensure that the biggest and most like financially wealthy, most powerful version of the church doesn't end up like dominating other smaller versions? So I guess the like, argument that I'm making right now, and I've just talked myself into it, is the idea of like, once you open that can, you can't close, like you can't put the toothpaste back in to the, the you know, tooth. No, I get it. That makes sense. Although when you ask those questions, I think they're very good ones. They're, they're super real and practical questions. Who gives up what? Who compromises, right? These are questions, these are like gritty human questions about power that have no place in the ideal community of Christ. They have a place, just practically speaking, we do them all the time. I'm just saying in this heavenly church that we're to go to, they actually don't have a place. Okay, but I'm gonna, I think you are, we're talking our way back to each other's points because I'm gonna bring up this whole thing about the book of Revelation again, which is, I don't, what if we, what if it's this? What if there was never going to be an ideal community until Revelation? Because when you talked about the book of Acts, like mm -hmm. this idea that there was a, you know, this unified crew, I would argue, no, that's not true because they did, there was the nice moment where it talks about how they shared everything in common, but then you have the story of Ananias and Sapphira, people who were like, you know, being dishonest about money from the church, they get cursed. You have the book 
uh, the church in Corinthians where there's like all kinds of weird sex stuff and money stuff going on. So I would argue like a lot of times some people make that argument. They're saying like, we need to get back to the, the new Testament crew. And I'm like, from the very beginning, it's full of dissension and division. Um, and it seems to me that's, it seems to me that that's the nature of things until we're, you know, in the kingdom for reals. It might be, but we can excavate back to the earlier moments. I mean, clearly when you're talking about Paul and Corinthians and the stuff he's dealing with, that's even a second layer beyond this. Or even by the time you get to Acts chapter five, I know that's a good point. That's a good point. It happens quick, but just because it happens doesn't mean it's right. True. True. But maybe it's, it's, what if we're, we've got too small of a view of what it means to be like in communion. Can't we be in communion with one another and experience a kind of unity, even though we're kind of messing it up and we've always got these distinctions. I mean, totally. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how you experience like your own family, for example, now that we're in the, in this in the, uh, self-isolation here, right. you know, my family, we're doing this thing. Like I get it. Like that's just the, that's the stuff of all human relationships. And I acknowledge that. Um, but we don't, we don't sever the bonds of our family over that. You know, um, we might do it in some small petty ways, but I think the way that churches have, severed from one another is more than petty it's been it's been it's been bitter and it's been wrong yeah i there's certainly examples of that i also think that churches who have tried to maintain a kind of unity that is maybe a false sense of unity have done so through domination and you know through power moves that like someone may argue oh look that's unity but we could also say that no that's just the powerful dominating the weak right. And right. isn't Christianity supposed to be an inversion of that? So we went eight minutes instead of five. Oh, we did. <laughs> I, you know, I wasn't policing it. Okay, how about this? How about we say? How about we we, we try to look at the other's view and say yeah. what was what was compelling and, and worth further thinking in the other person's view? Do you want to do that? Oh, for sure. I'll, yeah. I mean, I'll start. I'll start. I think. Yeah, I think there's something about this acknowledgement that. You know, like who needs this kind of unity, right? Like there are certain people who really need unity, like dictators, you know, certain right. mega church pastors, you know, may need it in order to keep the flock, keep the money flowing. And I feel, I do feel creeped out by the totalitarian vibe there, by that. And so I definitely don't want fake unity. And I think it's worth considering how much quote unquote unity isn't really real. Well, I think your best point, I mean, you made a lot of good points, but the one that is really hard to argue against is this idea that like, what are we doing messing around when, like, why not live the book of Revelation now? Like, you know, when the Lord, when we pray the Lord's pray, prayer, we say your kingdom come, like, do we not mean it? Right. So just because we do experience dissension doesn't mean that we ought to right. celebrate that. So this is a this is a really hard one for me personally because I I feel I mean I think about like the the person of the Holy Spirit among many things um, the the Spirit brings unity and holiness and those two things are really hard to have together like that we're all together and yet we all need to be like this people who, who are set apart and that as a church historian, it's like you see that constantly throughout time. It's just, there's this tension. And I guess ideally it would be a productive tension, like this idea that we should be unified and yet holy should, could, should and could create good things. But oftentimes we see it not creating good things at all. Well, you know, the last, I mean, in this Lenten season leading up to Easter, Christians are in the season of Lent, you know, we're all going to have to celebrate Easter by ourselves, not in our churches, which is so weird this year, right? That, that's happening. But like Jesus had his last supper too, though. Um, I don't know if this is a point for, for me or for you, actually, but I mean, Jesus had his last supper with Judas, 
Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. that's, that's that example of, of, you know, being with somebody who's, you know, basically selling you out at the highest degree for your life. And you're sharing that kind of bread. But, but then again, for your point, I think it shows you how it's like, well, what are you supposed to do in a church? Like go and worship with some and not maintain that, those boundaries of holiness with people who are like hurting your family or hurting you, you know? So I think that could swing either way. Yeah. It's a, it's a really hard one. So like, if you, you know, I think a lot of times the, I'm big into the unity thing, by the way. So it was, you know, you were making some really good points. I think one of the things that I always struggle with is, is how do we practice unity without uniformity? Like the idea that you need to like make other people into whatever version of God that you think. But what I always come back to is if you, if you have this view of Christian worship practices as being something like divine, and I think most people would think that they might disagree about, you know, how, like the ins and outs of, of how that actually gets worked out. But if we think that when we worship, God is doing something in us, shouldn't we aspire to that? So I, you know, I just, I personally go back and forth all the time on this one. What would, if, uh, you know, we'd probably, if we were there in Bauman in an ideal world, in yeah. the realized eschatology of the continuance of the class in the normal way, we would open it up for questions. We don't have that now. I wonder if we could even just gin up like a question we think someone might ask. Like, what if somebody raised their hand? I've got one. Do you have one? Yeah, I do. Dr. Payne, what if I wanted to bring, what if I felt like, yeah, it's true. I'm, I'm living in this, you know, fractured world, but I want to bring more unity to my Christian practice. But, and my church is maybe a church that split away from another church and it feels contentious, but I want to bring more unity, but I don't want to make the problem worse by now, like leaving the church I'm a part of too. Like, what can I do? Is there anything practical I can do to like live and in, 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 even like lean into Christian unity, even if I think it's okay that we worship as we do in all these different places? Oh, that's a really good question. Okay. I've got an idea. Then I think I want to hear from you. One of the ideas that I think that I have is the Christian practice of, um, of basically like caring for the poor. I think that's a great thing that we can all do together. So there are so many great examples of that. And in fact, right now we are in a moment um, of turmoil. And um, I think, and, and there, the, the lower folks on the rung um, economically in our culture are going to suffer the most. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not thinking about like people suffering from the, the COVID um, disease directly, but if you are uh, somebody who's lost their job recently, and I think that we're going to see, at least I hope that we'll see tremendous coordination and unity between groups working together to serve people in the way um, that we know God wants us to do. And so I guess that would be my first suggestion would be to participate in the work of God in the world, specifically serving the poor. What about you? Totally. Yeah, I agree with that as well. I think that's a good one. The, uh, just to kind of come around that or, or underneath it. I mean, one thing, I mean, one very simple thing people can do too is, uh, I don't know, this could get kind of superficial, but it's like, you can still have your church and go to your church, but every once in a while, a couple times a year, just get yourself out of that environment and go to an environment that's really, really different. You know, most churches that I've experienced with a very, very few exceptions, a couple of notable exceptions, but very few exceptions, welcome visitors, like really happily, you know? Um, and especially to go into a kind of church where people are worshiping in a way that's very different from me or people who look very different from me or act very different from me or whatever that is. Um, again, it's like, you know, I don't want to just like 
go to some other church once a year and be like, oh, I had my little tourism experience and another tradition. But I think it can become more than a tourism experience and can actually, those kind of, those kind of friendships can develop and they need to start somewhere. So to, to try to cultivate those, whatever that takes or however weird it feels, I found benefits of that in my own life. No, I absolutely think that that's right. I mean, that's, um, it's, it's a practical and common sense way of just getting outside of your particular bubble for a little while. Um, okay. I have a question for you and I don't know exactly how I would answer it myself yet. So I'm going to ask you first, what about denominations who think that everybody outside of their group is going to hell? How can those groups even think about unity? Wow. You know, I've never belonged to a group like that myself. Uh, I recognize that there are various groups that are like that. Um, some groups are very big groups like that and others that are, are very small kind of groups that are, you know, smaller in size. I guess, you know, on, on a bad day when I see that, I'm like, that is exactly what is wrong. This is the exact disunity. I feel very disappointed by that. On the other hand, I feel called to a certain kind of charity for if I want to live out this message, you know, I feel called to a certain kind of charity for people who don't agree with me. And it could even include people who don't agree on really serious things. Admittedly, though, it's tough. Like if I'm a Christian and you're a Christian, but I don't think that you actually are and you haven't violated something serious in the creed. Like, for instance, there could be an argument we could have. Like, let's say I said I didn't believe in the Trinity, only let that like two of the members of the Trinity were part or one. And you said, no, full Trinity. That might be like a creed level disagreement. Right. You know, where it's like, wow, you know, uh, and maybe we would have a legitimate reason to look at each other and say, I don't think you are fully there. We would even have like a faith responsibility to say that if we really believed it. And so I want, I guess, I don't know. I'm not really answering the question very well. I, I guess I want honesty in my faith expression. And I, I maintain that right to be able to look at somebody and say, this is wrong. On the other hand, I have to be open to you saying that to me too. Um, and so man, yeah, I don't know how to deal with that. I have had experiences like that in my life. And I think too often it just equals like, you don't, it's just coldness. Like you never interact with those people. There's no reason to, you know what they think about you. You know, uh, you, I don't know. What, 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 what do you think? How would you deal with a situation like that? Well, I mean, it's a hard one because um, as soon as you just say, I think you're going to hell, it does kind of shut the conversation down a little bit. But especially if you say it just like that, Um, you're going to the end, come to my position or you're done. Yeah. So, and I think, I mean, honestly, I, I've been in theological education for a long time and I have never heard, I've rarely heard people express that kind of thought with that kind of certainty. But I think that if I were going to hope for unity um, amongst people who have those kinds of positions, I think that I would encourage people to adopt a posture of humility. So, um, you know, I think one of the things there's, there have been a lot of critiques of Protestantism and one of the more famous critiques talks about how Protestants have, especially Protestants who come from like a Calvinist background, Protestants have this constant anxiety about whether or not they're saved and whether or not other people um, are saved. And if we have in our minds, like, this hard and fast rule that we know that we know that we know i just think that that's it's kind of prideful it can be prideful um and that is always a mistake according to the scriptures the scriptures say pride comes before fall so i think that if there's going to be any unity amongst groups that have like such harsh boundaries and there are groups that have harsh boundaries about everything like some people say oh if you haven't been baptized in our church you're going to hell or if you 
don't believe this particular thing you're going to help. I think that the hope for unity in a situation like that would be the hope to, to, that we would come together as particular believers who are, who are going to admit, like, I just don't know everything. There's a lot I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking of the, the famous reference in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. You know, therefore, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, you know, that, that right. recovery of a sense like we're, we all have to walk this path. Um, and even if we can't walk it always in the same church tradition, I do so with fear and trembling that, in fact, I'm no doubt missing something good that God has for me. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, okay. What other questions do you have, do you think? No, oh, man, I don't know. Where, have we been keeping a timer of this whole thing? We haven't. We don't even know where we're at with this. But. Um, well, we ha I think we have about five minutes left mm -hmm. on a yeah. particular debate. Yeah. Well, I mean, even uh, this whole thing raises the issue which was brought up last week and came up in the debate, even just about Catholics and Protestants, right? These are the two biggest groups. Um, I, I, I didn't hear any of our debaters at least making like super strict statements, but I did hear a statement from the Catholic perspective, you know, about the church with the capital C, the Catholic church being the true church and those who are outside of it are having a problem. Whereas our Protestant debater said, no, actually, you know, um, there might be all kinds of arrangements here and, and that's not the way it is, but you do have, you know, it, it might seem more sensical for those who are maybe more familiar with the Eastern Orthodox church versus Catholicism. There are just like affinities of style and of liturgy there that you could see that happening, but imagining Protestants and Catholics having a total reconciliation. What do you think the prospects of that are? Well, I am a big believer in the power of the Holy Spirit. I, I don't want to say that it's not possible because I do think that that is, I, I think that that is our end goal. And so I'm of the mind, you know, I, I'm of the mind of your point, which is like, why not pray for that now? Yeah. I do think it would be miraculous <laughs> if something like that were to happen because, um, because of the nature of the relationship between Protestants and Catholics, because, because the it's it, the meaning's all in the word like protestant to protest right. so there's something about protestants um that makes them much more um likely to split off from one another than right. um other forms like uh, i think one of the things that students uh, a misconception that students may have walked away um from some of our other lectures with is this idea that there's just like one Roman Catholicism because it's this massive global mm. expression of Christianity. And there are, there's lots of diversity within Roman Catholicism. And I think one place that you see that is just in the, in the monastic life. So there's monasticism, there are, you know, convents, there are places where people are dedicating their life um, to living out God, the, the work of God in like a, with a special calling, but there are lots of different kinds. So there are like, you know, there are Dominicans, there are Jesuits, there are Franciscans. So there, I think um, even within Roman Catholicism, I would guess that there's some conversation about how are we unified? Um, I mean, they would say it's through the sacraments. And I think that that's certainly true. And also they themselves have a lot of diversity. So right. it, man, it's a hard one. I know. Well, Students, this is a good point probably to end on here to continue thinking about these really hard questions of like, what does unity mean within the church? What does it mean to believe in the Holy Catholic Church, lowercase c, the church universal, and the communion of saints? To what extent do we have communion? To what extent 
to we not? And so with this, we're going to wrap up our, our, our church history boot camp and move on to our next phrase next week. But thanks for sticking with us um, in these weird times, in this weird format. Yes, we appreciate how difficult this has been uh, for many of you. And we hope to create um, a version of the course that you can finish with no, no problem. And we are here to support you. Take care. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you.